a word of warning. There are descriptions of violence in this episode that some listeners may find disturbing. On June 14, 1962, Anna Slessers was having a quiet Thursday at her apartment in Boston. She'd emigrated from Latvia more than a decade prior and was living alone following a divorce. Anna was in her mid-fifties and worked as a seamstress. Business was slow that week, so she was reportedly sent home the day before and was told not to return until Monday. Anna was expecting her son, Yuri's, to pick her up that evening. They were going to attend a memorial service. In Latvia, June 14th is a national day of commemoration, honoring those who were exiled from the region during World War II. Newspaper accounts of that night said that after eating dinner, Anna put on an opera record. She undressed, changed into a robe, and began running a bath. Then, she heard someone at the door. It wasn't her son arriving early to take her to the service. It wasn't a neighbor complaining about the music. The person was a complete stranger, and he would be the last person to see her alive. A serial killer in the making, an infamous one, the Boston Strangler. From ABC Audio, this is Truth and Lies, The Boston Strangler, a story about 13 victims, an inconclusive investigation, and lingering doubts over the guilt of the confessed killer. I'm Dick Lair. I'm a journalist, and I've spent most of my career reporting in Boston. It's been over 60 years since Anna Slessers was brutally murdered in her home. She was the first victim in a gruesome killing spree that would plague Boston for 18 long months. The investigation is still open to this day. Although the Boston Strangler is no longer prowling the streets, these decades-old crimes have left an indelible mark on this city and in the national imagination. This is Episode 1, The Women. We're standing out across from what was once 77 Gainsborough Street in Boston. It's been renamed 79 and for good reason. What is that reason, James? It was the first victim of the Boston Strangler. This is James Allen Fox. He's a criminologist at Northeastern University, and he's researched and written about the Boston Strangler in his books, including Extreme Killing, Understanding Serial and Mass Murder. In his spare time, James leads walking tours in Boston, bringing tourists to historic crime scenes around the city. We met at one of them, 77, well, or now 79, Gainsborough Street. The street is lined with butternut trees and row house style brick apartment buildings. Anna Slessers lived in one of those. And because it was the first, it has special significance and the number was changed perhaps to avoid people coming here and tourists taking pictures and perhaps also to that it wouldn't discourage renters. This hasn't stopped people from associating that apartment with the murder of Anna Slessers or from thinking about what happened there six decades ago. 
Today, the murder of Anna Slessers is still a cold case. When we asked the Boston Police Department for their case files on Anna and the other Boston Strangler victims, they said their records aren't publicly available because nearly all of the murders are still open cases. Much of what we know about the victims and what happened to them comes from articles written at the time, documentaries, and books. Books like The Boston Strangler, author Gerald Frank's 1966 bestseller, for which he says he conducted hundreds of hours of interviews, as well as reviewed police, medical, and court documents about the case. In his book, he chronicles the moment Anna's son Yuri's arrives here to pick up his mother. Yuri stands outside his mom's apartment, knocking. No answer. He puts his face up against the metal door. Silence. Something was wrong. In a 1994 BBC documentary, Yuri's recounts the moment he enters his mother's apartment. He slams his body against the door until it finally opens. He enters. He turns into the bedroom, but his mother isn't there. Yuri's notices her dresser drawers are open. Clothes are spilling out of them. He walks into the bathroom. There's water in the tub, but his mother isn't there. Then he goes into the kitchen. And there he found her, deceased, strangled with the belt from her housecoat. She's naked with her robe open, her body propped up against the wall. Anna has also reportedly been sexually assaulted. Yuri's calls the police. Former FBI profiler John E. Douglas, who spent decades researching notorious murder cases, including the Boston Strangler case, writes in his book, The Cases That Haunt Us, that when officers arrive on the scene, Anna's record player was still spinning, with just static coming out of the speakers. James Allen Fox says police searched for a motive. The police thought initially that it probably was a burglary gone bad. There was stuff all disheveled around the apartment, although nothing was stolen. Little did they know that what they believe was a burglary would be the first of 13 murders attributed to the Boston Strangler. The Boston that Anna Slessers lived and worked in was a place of genteel mansions and winding streets dating back to colonial times. It was once known as the Cradle of Liberty, and in the early 60s, it was a springboard for fresh political talent. Eager crowds gathered outside the West End branch of the Boston Public Library as Senator Kennedy and his pretty wife arrived at the... Boston's favorite son was elected president in 1960. That we shall pay any price, bear any burden, meet any hardship, support any friend, oppose any foe to assure the survival and the success of liberty. But there was another side to Boston back then. Boston back in the late 50s, early 60s was described as a hopeless has-been among cities, and it was in very bad shape. Jim Vrabel is a former Boston newspaper reporter and has written multiple books on the history of Boston. It was kind of like those anonymous cities in film noir movies of the 1950s, the black and white movies. 
What does a big city mean to you? You may think of soaring skyscrapers, monuments to man's creation. But I think of the people, the one and the many. A big city also means crime. But Jim says, at that time, Boston police knew what to expect for the most part. The kind of crime that Boston was used to were bank robberies. They were used to trucks being boosted by people who people would say that was the South Boston style. At the same time the Strangler murders started, you had the Boston gangland murders start. But that was organized crime people killing one another. That was the kind of crime Boston was used to, victimless crime or crimes among criminals. But Anna's murder and the string of murders that followed was different. The idea of innocent women being raped and killed was something that wasn't something people in Boston were used to. Despite the shocking nature of her killing, Anna Slusser's death only merited a few short paragraphs in the newspapers. Life continued as usual in Boston. A couple of weeks passed. June 30th, 1962. A few miles from Back Bay, Nina Nichols was returning home from a trip. She had retired a few years earlier from the hospital where she had worked as a physiotherapist. But at age 68, she still kept busy. In Gerald Frank's book, he writes that Nina traveled often up north to Maine and down to Florida. This time, she had stayed closer to home, spending the weekend in the seaside town of Duxbury, Massachusetts. According to a story published in The Atlantic at the time, when she returned home that day, she called her sister. They were making dinner plans when the buzzer rang. Nina told her sister someone was at the door and that she would call back. She hung up. That would be the last call Nina Nichols would ever make. She was found uh, on her bedroom floor. She was wearing a pink flannel robe torn from the waist down, and uh, there were stockings that were tied around her neck. She was strangled, and she was also sexually assaulted with a wine bottle. On the same Saturday Nina Nichols was murdered, another woman was killed in her home in Lynn, more than an hour's drive from Boston. Like Nina, Helen Blake was in her 60s and retired from the medical field. Helen had been a nurse. Like Anna Slessers, she loved music. The police would find Helen in the bedroom the following Monday, face down on her bed and partially nude. The North Adams Transcript, a newspaper in Massachusetts, reported at the time that a stocking and a bra were cinched around her neck and tied into a bow. Helen Blake had been dead for two days. Anna, Nina, and Helen, three older women who all lived alone. They were murdered in similar ways. Their apartments had been ransacked, but there was no broken door or smashed window. In fact, there was no sign of a break-in or forced entry at all. This was a pattern, and when there's a pattern, there could be a single killer. At least that's what Edmund McNamara was thinking. He was the Boston police commissioner at the time and was fairly new to the job. He had been sworn in about two months before Anna Slusser's murder. With a potential serial killer on the loose, Commissioner McNamara got to work. He canceled all police leaves 
and transferred all the detectives to the homicide unit. In a documentary for Court TV, John Donovan, the chief of Boston Homicide at the time, said they ordered check-ins on known sex offenders in Boston, as well as men released from mental institutions. An emergency number was set up for Boston residents to call with tips, and the police sent out a warning to women in every way they could, in the newspapers, over the airwaves, and on TV. Don't open the door to strangers. Later that summer, in August 1962, police received a call about a woman named Ida Erga. The Boston Globe reported that she was 75 years old and lived alone in Boston's West End neighborhood. She lived on the top floor of a five-story building, and during the summer, she would keep her door and skylight open. According to the Globe report, when police arrived at her place, they found her body on the floor near the dining room. On her back, her pajamas were torn, exposing her body. Her legs were held apart by two chairs. Uh, she, like the others, was, was strangled. She was strangled with a pillowcase and, like the others, was sexually assaulted. That summer brought even more terror to Boston. A fifth woman was found dead. Jane Sullivan was 67 and worked the night shift as a nurse. She was found strangled in her bathtub. She was face down. Her head and forearms were covered by water. Uh, her house coat was pulled over her shoulders. Her panties were down to her ankles, exposing her. And uh, apparently, she had been dead for a week, uh, strangled by nylon stockings. Jane lived on the other side of town from Ida. According to the newspaper reports, police said they were strangled to death within 24 hours of each other. After five murders in three months, police were still on the hunt. The Boston Globe ran a story at the time that claimed a homicidal maniac may be at large. Local TV station WBZ reported on the ways women were trying to protect themselves. Some carry heavy ashtrays and other artifacts suitable for throwing, and karate and jujitsu courses are becoming very popular. One karate course is advertised as a must for city living. Another local newspaper, the Boston Advertiser, even printed the following message to the strangler. Don't kill again. Come to us for help. You are a sick man. You don't want to kill again, but you know you will unless you give yourself up. And then, after a summer of fear and anxiety gripping Boston, the murders seemed to just stop. When residents turned into Boston's local TV station WHDH, they were hearing about things like Boston's rising skyline. Oh boy, there are lots of wonderful things happening in this wonderful town. And I can tell you there'll be a Liggett drugstore in the new Prudential Center. September turned into October and then November. But still, there were no arrests in the case, and it had been months since a killing of this nature had been reported. But as criminologist James Fox says, sometimes killers take breaks. There are lots of things in life that might take your time and attention. So when killings stop for a period of time, it's often because the perpetrator is engaged in something else. So it's not unheard of for there to be pauses. I've seen that before. The brutality often does increase because of the level of comfort. 
and before the new year, it did. As the air became colder, it seemed the killer had returned. But something had changed. On December 5, 1962, Sophie Clark was writing a letter to her fiancé. In his book, Gerald Frank includes what he says she wrote in the letter. My dearest Chuck, may this letter find the man I love well. How is that cold of yours? I feel fine, especially after you called me last night. You're the kind of medicine I need. The letter continued. Darling, I hope you don't take this long to write again. You know how I get when I don't hear from you. I... The letter cuts off. Later that day, Sophie's roommates would open the door to find her dead on the living room rug. She had been strangled with three nylon stockings that nearly cut into her skin. Her roommate, Gloria Todd Stanton, described the scene in an interview with the local TV station WCVB. Couldn't even get that stocking from around her neck. It was not her stocking. It was a lighter colored stocking. You couldn't even see it. It was so tight around her neck. There was a striking difference between this killing and the others. Sophie Clark was black, the killer's first victim of color, and decades younger than the previous victims. She was the first victim who was on the younger side. It had appeared previously that the victims were all elderly women, and now we have a 20-year-old. Sophie Clark did share some characteristics with those women. She lived just a couple blocks from Anna Slessor's, and she worked in the medical field, like Nina Nichols and Helen Blake. Sophie was a hospital technician and attended classes at the Carnegie Institute of Medical Technology. The police weren't sure if it was a pattern or just a coincidence. And when police inspected the crime scene, there reportedly was, yet again, no sign of forced entry. As police inspected the apartment, the Boston Globe reported that they found physical evidence that hadn't been found at any of the earlier crime scenes, a semen stain next to Sophie's body. The killer was growing bolder and more brutal, but he was also giving police more to go on, leaving behind traces of himself and his methods giving them leads to chase down. When detectives spoke to Sophie's neighbors, they learned about a suspicious man in the building the night she died. One news agency reported that the neighbor said a man knocked on her door. When she opened it, he pushed his way inside and said, I'm Thompson, I'm here to do the painting. He told her that she had a nice figure and asked if she ever considered modeling. The woman was taken aback. She told the man in the green work pants that her husband was sleeping in the next room, even though that wasn't the case. The ruse worked. The man quickly left the apartment. This wouldn't be the last time police would hear about a man in green work pants. According to reports in the Boston Globe at the time, when police spoke to a neighbor of Patricia Bissett, they heard about a man in a green work uniform who was seen inside the building around the time of her death. Patricia, or Patty as some knew her, was a 23-year-old secretary who also lived in Back Bay, close to Sophie and Anna. She worked at an engineering firm, and one newspaper reported that when she didn't show up for work, a colleague alerted the authorities. 
When police entered her apartment on New Year's Eve, there was still a Christmas tree in her living room. Newspaper reports said police found Patricia strangled and covered with a sheet. Police would later discover she was one month pregnant. Patricia Bassett would be the seventh woman and the last to die at the hands of this killer in 1962. But the murders didn't stop when the new year arrived. The next victim was Beverly Sammons. She was a student at Boston University who aspired to be an opera singer. She trained for years as a vocalist. The Boston Globe reported that the killer stabbed her repeatedly in the chest and throat. The next two murders would have chilling similarities to each other. Evelyn Corbin was found strangled with her nylon stockings. The front of her shirt had been ripped open with so much force that multiple buttons were missing. Two months later, Joanne Graff was found in a similar state. Nylons around her neck, buttons missing from the front of her blouse, according to newspaper reports at the time. The difference between the two was their age. Evelyn Corbin was 58 years old, and Joanne Graff was 23. By the fall of 1963, police still didn't have answers, and the killings weren't over. Some folks don't stop searching till they find the truth. If you've got a detective's eye, June's Journey is the game for you. Play as June Parker in a gripping murder mystery as you find hidden objects to help solve her sister's death. You'll hunt for clues in hundreds of beautifully illustrated scenes set in the Roaring Twenties. New chapters are added weekly. Find your first clue by downloading June's Journey today. Available on Android and iOS mobile devices as well as on PC through Facebook games. We've got the exclusive view behind the table. Every day, right after the show, while the topics are still hot, the ladies go deeper into the moments that make the view the view. The View's Behind the Table podcast. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. We interrupt this program to bring you a special bulletin from ABC Radio. In the midst of these murders, the people of Massachusetts and the country were hit with an unbelievable blow. Ladies and gentlemen, the President of the United States is dead of an assassin's bullet in Dallas, Texas. Shot by an assassin while his motorcade was moving along the street. Around the country, there was a feeling of despair and deep worry about where the country might be headed. In Boston, the home of the slain president, the grief fell particularly hard. The public and the detectives were also dealing with a serial killer on the loose. My name is John D. Natale. Phil D. Natale with my father, who was a Boston police detective until approximately 1968. According to John, Phil D. Natale was one of the first homicide detectives assigned to work the Boston Strangler case. He died in 1987. John now runs the detective agency his father founded after he retired from the force. He's also the custodian of what he says are his father's meticulous records from the Boston Strangler investigation. He made a documentary about the case called Stranglehold. This is the untold story of the Boston Strangler by Philip J. Dianatale. It began on... John was 10 when his dad started investigating the Boston Strangler case. He says he remembers a city in fear. First couple of murders, okay. 
now fifth, sixth murder. Now people are walking down the street in Boston and they're walking in groups. You go to the animal shelter to get a dog. There are no dogs to be taken because everybody has a dog. Women in the back bay were taking Coke bottles, breaking them up and putting the broken jagged glass on their windowsills so that if somebody tried to come in a window, they were going to step on the broken glass. This was the nature of the fear in Boston at the time. John says the pressure on his father and everyone working the case searching for this killer was overwhelming. Everybody was chasing their tails. They had hundreds and hundreds of suspects. Police were trying to figure out what kind of person would repeatedly go after women, sexually assault them, strangle them to death, and leave their bodies displayed in gruesome and degrading positions. Several newspapers reported at the time that investigators tried to come up with a profile of who the killer might be. It's a technique used often in law enforcement today. But John Di Natale says when his father was on the case, it was something new to him. Back then, the profiling was just in its infancy. They did have a group of psychiatrists try to come up with a profile as to who they were looking for. And they came up with, it could be a priest. Because you're thinking, how does somebody get into an apartment 13 times? Maybe he's dressed as a police officer. Some sort of uniform that's going to cause people to say, yeah, okay, he can come in. Another theory was that the killer worked in hospitals. Several of his victims were nurses or worked in medical clinics or they'd recently been in the hospital. Maybe he'd gotten to know them there. How did the Strangler get into these women's homes? With the murders dominating the local news, why would any woman in Boston open her door to an unfamiliar man? But John Di Natale says, based on what he knows from his father's case files, it's really not that surprising. You have to go back and put yourself, if you can, in the 1960s and in just the way things were back then. You know, if somebody banged on a door and started hitting doorbells and somebody said, yes, who is it? said, you know, I'm from the super. He sent me over to fix a leak. And, you know, as my father used to say to everybody back then, don't forget, the back bay is built on a bay. They filled in the back bay. Boston's back bay neighborhood was built in a river basin. So for there to be leaks and basement problems, it wasn't uncommon. Again, people back then, if somebody rang on the bell and said, hey, the super sent me to fix, people let you in. And that was one of the most amazing parts of the story initially. The last woman to die at the hands of the strangler was a young newcomer to Boston. On January 4th, 1964, another body in Boston, Mary Sullivan's 44A Charles Street, apartment two. Mary Sullivan was 19 years old. According to various news reports, she had moved into her apartment on New Year's Day, just four days earlier. She was from a family of six children. Her nephew, Casey Sherman, told ABC News in 2001 about the toll her death took on his family. It's a loss my mother never got over. Uh, her 19-year-old sister left her quiet Cape Cod hometown for life in the big city. Four days later, she was murdered. Casey never knew his aunt, but he spent years trying to solve her murder, including writing a book about the case. Mary Sullivan would be the Strangler's last and youngest victim. 
The killer staged her body viciously, perhaps a taunt or jeer at those trying to catch him. She had been strangled with a stocking and two scarves, propped up against her left foot, a greeting card. It said, Happy New Year. And the killer left behind a ghastly crime scene. He uh, sexually assaults her with a broomstick. It was, it was the most horrible crime scene that any of the Boston investigators had ever witnessed. There was also crucial evidence left at the scene of the crime. Semen that would later lead police closer to the truth. Anna. Nina. Helen. Ida. Jane. Sophie. Patricia. Beverly, Evelyn, Joanne, Mary. Eleven lives cut short. Two more names would later join the list. Two we haven't mentioned because their connection to the case wouldn't be revealed until later, when someone would confess to their murders. 85-year-old Mary Mullen was found dead on her sofa near the beginning of the Boston Strangler's killing spree. The Boston Globe reported that police believed she had died of fright. Her heart failed after she was attacked. Another woman, Mary Brown, was beaten and stabbed in March 1963. She was in her late 60s. Police didn't initially count her as one of the Strangler's victims because she lived far outside Boston, according to the Globe. In all, there would be 13 women, 13 murders the police would have to solve. In the next episode, police and the public are desperate for answers. The investigation ramps up, but conventional police work isn't cutting it. To crack the case, Boston law enforcement enlists less traditional methods, veering into the realm of the paranormal. Extraordinary methods of investigation are needed to deal with these highly abnormal crimes. If there was an opportunity that would help solve this case, they were going to do it. His gift of ESP, Mr. Hercos looked at photographs, touched certain objects, and then described the type of individual he thought was guilty. Truth and Lies, The Boston Strangler is a production of ABC Audio and a companion podcast for the 20th Century Studios film, Boston Strangler, starring Kira Knightley. Streaming on Hulu beginning March 17th. 20th Century Studios is a division of the Walt Disney Company, the parent company of ABC News. This podcast was written and produced by Meg Fierro, Carrie Ann Thomas, Mara Milwaukee, and Stephen Smith. Our supervising producers were Susie Liu and Sasha Aslanian. Music and mixing by Evan Viola. Scoring and mixing by Vanessa Lowe. Special thanks to Amira Williams, Ariel Chester, Madeline Wood, Rachel Winsloff, and Josh Cohan. Laura Mayer is our executive producer. Liz Alessi is VP of audio.